Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to 1 John chapter 2, finishing 1 John 2 this evening, abiding and spiritual discernment. Since early in the series, I've been telling you that 1 John is a book centered upon fullness of joy in the life of the believer through abiding in Christ. And we have seen this play out in the teaching already, calling us unto a sincere love for God, an unfeigned love for the brethren, rooted in rejecting a love of the things of this world in deference to the things of Christ. And indeed, that's what we talked about last week. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Founding that first on Paul's confidence, uh, John, excuse me, John's confidence in their their standing in Christ, that they are believers, that they are those who know the Father, uh, they are those who are overcoming, and yet then he calls them love not the world. And in our passage today, we, I, I'd say go in a different direction, but not really. I've also told you from the beginning that First John is a book of warning, specifically warning against false teachers. This is not something that is typically thought about when you think of First John. If you ask 10 people what the theme of First John is, you're not going to find false teaching regularly spoken of as one of the common themes of 1 John. But 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 4, we do see this idea come up quite often, and in fact, uh, it does form a centralized theme as it relates to the book itself. We have seen glimmers of this in statements thus far, and we'll see those glimmers come to full fruition tonight. That reality uh, is, is the, it fully fleshed out as it relates to the dangers of false teaching as John is warning them. And the foundation for the warnings this evening are the themes of light and darkness. This is a theme found regularly in the Gospel of John, so we should not necessarily be surprised if we see it in 1 John. However, that theme generally dominates the first 12 chapters of John, uh, that part of the, of the Gospel of John that is uniquely focused upon spreading the Gospel, not so much the part that focuses upon the disciples of Jesus himself. John's first statement along these lines, however, this is a theme that, that we've seen throughout. In, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John's first statement was that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So this is a theme that we've begun or that we've seen from the beginning of 1 John. To that end, John warned in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, that if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Then a couple of weeks ago in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, and then again in verse 11, we found this direct statement that if we walk in the light, but we hate our brother, if we say we walk in the light, excuse me, but hate our brother, we are actually abiding in darkness and the darkness has blinded our eyes. So light and darkness is something that we've seen regularly, even throughout 1 John to this point. Now, we have talked about darkness, right? We've talked about the fact that darkness is not a thing in and of itself, but that darkness is defined as the absence of light. uh, And and we've also talked about the disorienting nature of darkness, that when we walk in darkness, the distinction of such is that I'm unable to properly orient myself to the world that is around me. Even if I think I'm properly oriented, if it's completely dark, And I start walking in a direction and I say, well, I haven't turned. So because I haven't turned, when I was started walking, I was walking north. So I must still be walking north. Well, maybe. But it's pretty easy to start to drift a little bit one way or another. And if it's completely dark, you cannot reorient yourself in order to know which direction you're actually heading in. For all that, you could be walking in a circle. So 
the idea of darkness, the concept that if we're walking in darkness, we will lack the necessary spiritual discernment to properly orient ourselves to reality as God has designed it. It's for this reason that you can have people that are very smart, very clever, um, that, that are very well educated, and yet, as Romans chapter 1 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They are very well educated people. They are very uh, um, intelligent people, but they are foolish. They, they cannot properly orient themselves to truth because they are walking in darkness. They are spiritually dark. For all of their knowledge, for all of their education, they cannot glean the simple truths of morality, of, of, of reality as God has designed it because they are walking in darkness. And it was important that John tell us these things before what we are going to talk about today. Because today John is exhorting the believers unto spiritual discernment, specifically related to false teaching. And there is no spiritual discernment if you're walking in darkness. So he had to precede his exhortations to them to be discerning with those things that would be fundamentally um, hostile to their capacity to do the thing he's going to instruct them to do. How can I instruct my people to discern rightly if I don't first instruct them about the danger of walking in darkness? about the danger of not being able to orient themselves properly to the truth. So as John exhorts them, he's going to first say, be right with one another, have a right relationship as it relates to orientation to the love of God, because if the love of God is not in you, and if you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness, you're not walking in the light, and if you're not walking in the light, then you will not be able to discern truth properly. You will not be able to orient yourself to the truths of God's word properly. If we are living in a love for the world, if we are disesteeming the brethren, so walking in darkness, we will be fundamentally incapable of having proper spiritual discernment. So John has warned us first of those things, and then he warns us, beginning in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2, of the dangers of the false teachers that were among those people in that day. So 1 John 2.18 says this, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. So once again, we see uh, John address these readers as believers. He goes back to that word that we talked about last week, that first little children, and the one that's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, little children, affectionately titling them as such, giving confidence that they are, in fact, believers. And John tells them plainly, it is the last time. Now, this is a bit of a loaded phrase. That hearkens strongly to prophecy. It is the last time. Throughout prophetic portions of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the final portion of God's prophetic plan prior to the end times is called by several different names. The latter days, the last days, the latter times, the last time. And all of those phrases, going all the way back really into the Pentateuch, are phrases that are intended to invoke in the mind of the reader the prophetic promises of what God would be doing in the final phase of his program prior to Messiah coming, well, as we know, the second time in the Jewish mind, Messiah coming, right? Um, that Messiah coming would initiate the last days or that it would be a part of the last days. This time has always been connected to that final portion of God's prophetic program. Now, 
When we talk about this, and I'm, I'm loading a bunch of stuff on you, which if, you, if you're not familiar with prophecy, uh, might be a bit much, but um, I have my whole Revelation series online that you can certainly go listen to, and that'll catch you up to speed um, very thoroughly. Um, so uh, the first eight weeks of that are just foundation on interpreting the Bible and interpreting prophecy. And then we get into, so it was two months into the Revelation series before I even got to Revelation chapter one, verse one. So if you think the first John series had a little, have a hard time getting started, go to the Revelation series. That one uh, took a little while to, to, to lift off. But, but I, I hope it's, I hope it's a, a, of, of use um, to, to those who are trying to understand prophecy. So, uh, within Old Testament prophecy, when we discuss Old Testament prophecy, we discuss the fact that the Old Testament did not anticipate the age that we live in now, what we would call the church age. Paul tells us that the church age was what's called in the Bible a mystery, meaning that there was no direct indication in prophecy that that age was going to exist. So when the last days is presented in the Old Testament, it is presented in somewhat of a unique fashion as we look back upon it now. The prophet saw various events that would be events in the last days. These would be what we might consider high points of history or high points in the events of history. Uh, I should have put a screen up. I did not. But if you think of it kind of like hills and valleys, it's as if the prophet was standing upon a hill. And as he was looking, I don't know if you've ever done this before. I grew up in Colorado and I would go hike in the mountains. And when you'd go up and you'd hike in the mountains, if you looked off into the distance, you would see a peak and a peak and a peak and a peak. And I knew, because you know how those mountains work, that in between those peaks would be lovely valleys. You knew the valleys were there, but you could not see the valleys. You couldn't see the valleys because you were standing on a peak and you were looking and you were looking directly across at other peaks. And so all you could see are the peaks. And that's kind of the way that the prophets saw prophecy, saw things in the Old Testament. They would look at the latter days and it was as if they were standing on a peak and what they would see is they would see other peaks of history. They would see other events in history and they would say, I saw this and I saw this and I saw this. But just because they saw those peaks does not necessarily mean that there's nothing in between those peaks. But when they presented the prophecies, they presented them contiguously. One event, then another event, then another event, then another event. And they did not see the valleys that may have been in between those peaks. They were only given sight to see the peaks. So as prophets looked in the Old Testament, they saw the last days and they saw events in the last days, but they didn't necessarily see how much time would be between those particular events. So the Bible makes it clear that the prophetic last days were initiated on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. The, uh, the disciples were meeting in the upper room, awaiting the Spirit of God, and the Spirit fell upon them on the day of Pentecost. And we know that this is the day that the last days would have initiated because of the promises of Scripture. In, Deut- uh, in, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel sees a vision of 70 weeks. 
And those 70 weeks, as we extrapolated, again, a lot more than I can give you tonight, extrapolate into 490 years of history. And we can look back upon 483 of those years. We can pinpoint in history 483 of those years. And in the 483rd year, that is the year after which the Bible says Messiah shall be cut off. And then there's seven more years, and in history we have not yet seen those years, depending on how you interpret uh, the, 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 the prophecy. Some people say we have seen those years. But as far as our, our interpretive method is concerned, we have not seen those years yet. So to this day, there has been effectively a 2,000-year valley between year 483 and the next year that was going to pick up, year 484 through four, uh, 490. And again, I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't anticipating giving this much this evening, so that's why I don't have any slides for these things. Um, anyway, so we step then into the day of Pentecost, and the way we know that the last days had begun is because of what Peter preached on that day. On that day, Peter quoted Joel 2, and he invoked the prophetic working of Joel 2 as a part of what that day represented. So that in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through um, um, 21, Peter quotes Joel 2. And then we pick up, uh, um, hmm, hmm, what am I doing here? Okay, uh, that's what I'm doing here. Um, so Peter, yes, so in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, Peter quotes Joel 2. And when Peter is quoting Joel 2, he says, today, this thing is happening. Now, let me read to you Joel 2. That's where I was going. I wasn't going to read you Acts. I was going to read you Joel. So in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, Joel writes this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So we have this prophecy here. And this prophecy is of the spirit of the Lord being poured out at a time that Joel calls afterward. And Peter then says in Acts chapter 2, that this was realized in manifestation to the Spirit of God in the days of Pentecost. And he quotes the whole prophecy in Acts chapter 2. And this is interesting, because Peter says, this is what Joel prophesied, and then he begins to quote the prophecy. But those of you that are familiar with prophecy know that not all of Joel 2 happened on that day. We have not yet seen the promises in Joel 2 Blood and fire and pillars of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. We've not seen that yet. But you did see the beginning of that prophecy take place in Acts chapter 2. That it shall come to pass afterward. He will pour out his spirit. Their sons and their daughters shall prophesy. Their old men shall dream dreams. These were things that were marks of what was happening there in Acts chapter 2. So when we read about these wonders in heaven and in earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, 
This actually doesn't happen until Revelation chapter 6. Let me read to you Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Revelation 6 is actually where the second half of that Joel 2 prophecy comes to pass. So as Joel was writing these words in Joel chapter 2, he was standing on the peak and he saw two more peaks. He saw a peak that was the working of God, the pouring out of his spirit. And he saw another one, which is the sun turning to, to uh, the sun being blackened, the moon turning to blood, fire and smoke and pillars of smoke and the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's what he saw. But what he could not see in between is the 2,000 years of history thus far that we call the church age. And Paul acknowledges that. Paul says the church was a mystery. It was something that was unrevealed to the prophets in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament prophets were not told of the church. They could not see the valley in between those two peaks, but it is there. We are testimony to that fact. We haven't come to Revelation 6 yet. We haven't come to the opening of that seal. Nobody has seen that. That has not happened yet. But most certainly Peter says, Joel 2 began happening on the day of Pentecost. That's why Peter preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2. And so what that tells us is that the entire church age is actually in the last days. We are in what the Bible calls the last days. That doesn't mean Jesus is going to come before we die, although that would be really nice. But what it does mean is that this is the final act in God's program before Christ comes. There's not going to be another age. And the reason why we can be confident, you say, well, maybe we just haven't seen all the valleys yet, Pastor. Yes, but God calls these the last days. And the last days are the last thing in the prophetic program leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So at this point, we believe, and this is a big part of, of, of why we believe, say, that prophecy has not continued, that there are not still revelations and uh, adding on of Scripture and such. God has finished the Bible because the program is now revealed in full. As a matter of fact, if we go to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we find something very interesting. Back in Daniel, if you were to read Daniel, God told Daniel that the, the, the visions in Daniel's day the angel said, seal up the prophecy of this book. Seal it up until the last days, right? But what do we find in the book of the Revelation? The angel says, don't seal this up. Don't seal this up. Why? Because we're there. There's nothing left to be hidden. There's nothing left to be, to be revealed. I mean, yes, we're still waiting for the revelation of these things, but God has told us everything he's going to tell us. He has given us the insight. He's given us everything he's going to give us. And that's what we believe. And we believe that because of what we see in the unfolding of God's prophetic plan and how he has written it out. So then John is simply acknowledging this in 1 John chapter 2. He just passes by it. I spent a bunch of time on it, but he just passes by it because he fully assumed that everyone who was listening to him understood that they were in the last days. And as we know, especially from Paul's teachings in the Thessalonians, they did not expect Jesus to, to tarry long. Most of them thought that Jesus would come before the end of their lives, as has pretty much every generation of the church. 
Every generation just about has thought Jesus is going to come before the end of their lives. This is what we call the imminent, the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Because in each generation, we see, uh, we, we, we see that, that Christ could certainly come. It's entirely possible. There's nothing that need be fulfilled for him to come and, and initiate his plan for the end times to get going. And so he says these are the last times. And we've just kind of gone on a roundabout journey to, to, to assert what he says here in passing. It is indeed the last time. And then notice what he says. And even as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists. The implications of this is that it was prophesied specifically in Daniel, confirmed by Jesus' teachings in the gospel and Paul's teachings in Thessalonians, that there was a man coming. Thessalonians, he's called the man of sin, the son of perdition. Jesus Christ called him the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24. That is actually coming from Daniel's prophecies in Daniel, where the abomination of desolation is one uh, element surrounding this man. He's also called the little horn. And all of these are pointing to a person. Now, it is interesting to note that only in First and Second John is the term Antichrist used. Antichrist is actually the term, if you're kind of reading literature or whatnot, that has bubbled up to the top as the name for this one who is to come, the Antichrist. But he's only... The name Antichrist, the word Antichrist, is actually only found here in 1 John and in 2 John. So when John says here, ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. If I were uh, going to be modifying the King James translation in any way here, I would have added an article, or at very least I would have capitalized the A here, because we find that this is articular, meaning that this is speaking of an identity, the Antichrist. Antichrist as in a person, Antichrist will come, the Antichrist. This is speaking of an identity here. And this is contrasted with every other use, including the second use here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And ye have heard, even now there are many antichrists. That is not a name there. That is, uh, th that is the same word, but it does not have the article, which means it's not stressing identity. It's stressing character. So as John is writing this, he says this, you know that there is a person coming who is and who will be the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition. But even today, there are many who are after the spirit of Antichrist. There are many who are living in an Antichrist philosophy, an Antichrist way, his character or his essence. And this is the contrast that John is making here. He says, the Antichrist will come. That day's coming. He hasn't come yet. As far as we know, he, he may be on earth right now, but he sure hasn't revealed himself. But even now, there are many who carry forward the character of Antichrist with them. They are not the man himself, but they have the same attitude, the same spirit, the same error that will be magnified in the great man of sin at the end of days. And of note in John's warning are men who seek unto the religious sensibilities of other men, but who carry an antichrist spirit. So John warns in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they, that it might be, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Kind of an interesting 
uh, statement here, but if you parse it out, it's, it's, it's not hard to understand. John says that the people against whom he is warning them, these people that he is obviously calling antichrists, he is not calling them the antichrist, but he is saying that they carry with them the same error, the same spirit, the same wickedness, the same sin, as Antichrist himself, that same spirit of wickedness, that same spirit of being against Christ. He said that these people of whom he is speaking here are men who have gone out from them, though they are not of them. In other words, they are people who came from out of the church. Those who were familiar with the doctrines of Scripture. Those who were likely men of capability as it related to teaching and communication. But they were not of us, he says. They were not of the church. They were not believers. They were false teachers. They claimed to represent the Bible, but they are not in the faith. And because they are not in the faith, they do not have the Spirit of God. And because they do not have the Spirit of God, they walk in darkness and not the light. And because they are walking in darkness and not walking in the light, they have no spiritual discernment, and so they are teaching error but they're representing it as truth, which is exactly the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist will be a man who represents everything that is against Christ, but he will represent himself as truth, as the alternative. This is a warning against false teachers. And John substantiates his claim. He says that had they been of sound doctrine they would have continued with us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but instead they separated themselves. Do you see why it is that John began by talking about darkness and light? Why it is John began about talking about those that are walking in darkness? That if you say you have no sin, you lie and do not the truth? That if you say you have not sinned, you are in darkness and the truth is not in you? That if you say that you are in walking in the light, but you hate your brother, you are in darkness? Very likely, what John is doing is he is running down a list of people, the, the manifestations of these false teachers who have rejected the brethren, who say that they have no sin, who are telling you that you can love the world and still uh, have the love of the Father in them. There are teachers who are saying all of these things to them, and John is saying, you have to look, look with spiritual discernment to recognize that these men are antichrists. They are not of the truth. Yes, they, they claim to be representing the Christian church. They have come out of the church. They've got all the right words to say. They've got all the right things. They've got all the right, the right catchphrases. They can look the part. They can sound the part, but they are not living the part. And we know that they're walking in darkness and don't be like them. Don't follow that darkness. So we don't have all the details here, but these are some relatively safe assumptions that we can make. It was likely that there was a group of men, maybe trained by the apostles, if not trained by the apostles, um, then, then certainly those who came out of the church and understood the Christian church, but they did not remain in the teachings of the apostles. They took their own thoughts, they took their own ideas, and they were proliferating them through the church, or maybe churches. They were creating their own ideas, ideas which were not just different than the apostles, but contrary to sound doctrine, contrary to Christ, anti-Christ ideas. And in that the apostles were fervently holding to the principles of Christ in their teachings, those who did not continue with them 
would have done so for really only one reason. Because they were not of them. They were not of sound doctrine. They were not of the faith. But here's the thing. They were claiming to be of sound doctrine. They were claiming to be of the faith. So as we put these pieces together, we can make a few more assumptions based upon John's teaching to this point. We might assume these false teachers, as I said, had unique ideas surrounding sin, surrounding relationship to the world, and surrounding the nature of relationship to brothers. And that last one particularly, in that these false teachers had probably separated themselves. And they were probably spreading lies about these, the apostles. They were probably trying to undermine the authority of the apostles, undermine the authority of others in the church that had stayed with the apostles' doctrine. And they were being contentious and divisive in the church. And John says these are not, these are, these are, are, are not the marks of sound doctrine. So John reminds these believers then that they are equipped by God to know the difference between truth and lies and that they needed to strongly cling to that ability. So we read in 1 John 2, verses 20 and 21, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So John tells the believers they have an unction. The word that we'll see later on is the exact same word in verse 27 is anointing from the Holy One. And by this they know all things. Now John will reference this again, as I said, in verse 27. We'll jump there to gain context. Verse 27 says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, these teachings bookend a warning, and we're going to talk about that warning, about false teachers. Again, we'll come to that in a minute. But see what we have here. John says that this unction or this anointing has been given to those who are born-again believers. He says it abides in them. This anointing uh, is abiding in them. And this anointing makes it so that no man needs to teach them, but rather this anointing teaches them of all things and is truth and is no lie. And as we abide in that anointing, we abide in those teachings, we abide in him. Now notice the pronoun change here from the impersonal it to the personal him. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. This means we're talking about two different ideas here. We'll come back to that in a minute. But as we read through this, this unction, this anointing that you have within you, and through this unction, this anointing, you know all things. You need not that any man teach you. This is a bit of a startling statement, isn't it? And the reason why is because throughout the New Testament, we are told of the importance of teachers. Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, First Peter, all speak of the importance of spiritual teachers. Is John contradicting this idea here? 
When John says you need not that any man teach you, is he, is he saying that you do not need spiritual teachers? Is he saying that we don't need human teachers, but rather this anointing uh, which is in us is sufficient? Well, no, that's not what John is saying here. I mean, seeing that John is teaching them right now, it would be kind of silly for him to say that they don't need the teaching. Why are you writing a book, an epistle, teaching them things if they don't need to be taught because the Spirit of God will do it all? It would be silly and contradictory, kind of hypocritical even, for a man to spend time teaching people that don't need teachers since he's teaching them. So that's not what he's saying here. To the contrary, this idea is drawn from Jesus' teaching. You want to guess where? John 14, 15, and 16. <laughs> Just about everything in 1 John is, is drawn from John 13 through 17, right? If, you, if you're looking for a cross-reference, just read John 13 through 17. You'll find a cross-reference to something that you are, are learning in 1 John. So he pulls from John 14 through 16, and specifically regarding the idea of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we read this in John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Notice here that this anointing that John speaks of in 1 John chapter 2 corresponds to the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, in John 14, 26. So we now know what this anointing is. This anointing is the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us, and the Holy Spirit of God indwells us at the moment of salvation. Continuing, John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And so the Comforter will come, and the functional purpose of the Comforter when he comes is called the Spirit of truth, proceeding from the Father, to, will testify of Christ. And then we also see this in John 16, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So several points of clarity come from this chapter as it relates to what John is saying in 1 John 2 as, as he speaks of this idea in verse 27 that we need not have a teacher or we need not anyone to teach us. First, the anointing is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when John speaks of the anointing and he says in verse 27, it shall teach you of all things and ye shall abide in him, the it there is intrinsically the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's the it. Second, Jesus came, and in John 14, 26, he promised that he would send the Comforter. And when the Comforter came, the Comforter would teach his followers all things, Jesus said. But then he said this. He said, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. That's a very important clarification to what Jesus is saying there. Jesus clarifying that the ministry of the Spirit of God is not that when you are abiding in the Spirit of God, you will have some sort of miraculous 
imbibing of spiritual knowledge, that there will be some sort of unique spiritual knowledge transfer where you're just going to wake up one morning, you've been abiding in Jesus, and all of a sudden everything in the scriptures is going to be in your head and it's all going to make sense and you're going to be able to quote scripture. That's not what this is saying. It is also not saying that you're not going to misunderstand anything if you're abiding in him because you uh, are, are abiding in him. Therefore, everything's just going to make perfect sense to you. Well, no, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that the work of the spirit of God will be to take the things which you have been taught, bring them to your remembrance, apply them to your hearts and add clarity and perspective Jesus said, I have told you things. And when the comforter comes, those things that I have told you, he will bring to remembrance. Jesus did not say, you don't need me telling you anything because the comforter's coming. No, Jesus said, I have told you these things. I have taught you. The spirit of God will then bring these truths to your remembrance. Then in in John 15, Jesus promised that the comforter would be the spirit of truth and he would what? testify of me. So the Spirit of God is functioning to testify of Christ, to take those things that are of Christ that we have been taught and to testify of them in our hearts. And then, of course, in John 16, Jesus says that the Spirit of God would not just testify to us of the truths of Christ, but would testify to the world, everyone in the world, of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, convicting the world of their need for a Savior. Now let's carry what we've seen in John back into 1 John so that we might understand the idea here is not that the anointing of God through his spirit will give us spontaneous knowledge of things, making human teachers obsolete. If so, I can just retire today. I can go get out of here. I can go do something else. You can just read your Bible and the spirit of God will take care of it for you. But that's not what he's saying here. The Spirit of God will commend truth to the heart of God's people so that as you hear truth, as you hear those claims, the Spirit of God will give you discernment to know whether or not they are consistent with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Testify of truth and error as you align yourselves with this truth. Only for those, however, that are not walking in darkness. You say, well, I've known plenty of believers who have gotten caught up in false teaching. Yes, they have stepped out of light into darkness and they've lost their ability to orient themselves properly to truth. And this is something which can happen to any of us. Hence the reason John is teaching this to us. Because it's entirely possible that this can happen to us. This is why we've got to stay close to the book. We've got to stay close to the book and we've got to stay right with God so that we can orient ourselves properly to the book. So the Spirit of God will commend these truths to our hearts. And it works unto the end that we can continue to abide in Him. The teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit will take truth as it hits our hearts. It will drive it into our hearts so that we can apply it properly, so that we can orient ourselves properly to Christ. It's kind of like what I did over the last two weeks in Genesis. How is it that we, when we talk through the Nephilim theory, why is it that, 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 that it, it does not commend itself to my heart? Well, it's actually not for all of the practical reasons we talked about last week. The reasons why are the ones we talked about today. That I feel like it runs fundamentally contrary to the character of God as presented throughout the scriptures. This is the spirit of God saying, 
you've got this understanding of the Bible and of what God, who God is in the Bible. He has taught you these things. And this theory is like, it's, it's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. It's not, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the character of God. It doesn't fit the themes that God has placed into his word. That's the idea of discernment. That as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. We are comparing scripture with scripture. And the spirit of God is saying, you know what? As you hear that teaching, as you hear that thing that that, that, is, that, that, that teacher is saying, there is something that is inconsistent with what he is saying with with who I am. And that creates checks in your spirit. Or, and I love it when this happens, when I'm listening to someone preach or particularly you know, uh, listening to someone preach, reading a book or whatever it is, and as the preacher is preaching, it is as if the Spirit of God is saying, yes, that is it. That is truth. And perhaps you've experienced that before as well, where you have recognized truth. And, and because you are seeking the Lord and because you understand truth, that as you have heard someone teach on the word of God, and, and there's been perhaps clarity given to the word of God, the spirit of God is giving you that clarity, is commending those truths to your heart and is saying this is in line with the character of Christ. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we want. And by the way, that's the job of the teacher. The job of the teacher is not to draw you into unique, novel, insightful contemplations and unique doctrines and ideas. Those are fun. It's fun to run down that rabbit hole of things that maybe people haven't thought of before, unique angles to things, and that could be a lot of fun. But that's not the teacher's job in the church. The job of the teacher is to get truth into your ears so that then the Spirit of God may take that truth and do something in your heart with it. How can they hear without a preacher? And then the Spirit of God can teach you how to relate yourself to those truths. And if at any time you hear a teacher who has taken upon himself the task of teaching you things that stand in opposition to the truths of Christ things which require you to strain your spiritual understanding and come outside of the testimony of truth in your spirit, well, this is something which should cause you to pause and question whether this is truth or this is a lie. Back then to 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus, remember, we, we kind of jumped through, we, we skipped a portion of scripture there to talk about the anointing. We're coming back to these false teachers, these antichrists. Verse 22. And 23, John says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So John asks, Who is a liar but the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This man, he calls him an Antichrist. Not the Antichrist here, it's, it's an Arthurus again, it doesn't have the article, it's an Antichrist. He carries the character and the essence that is the same as the spirit of Antichrist. If a man denies Jesus is the Christ, he doesn't just deny the Son, but he is actually denying the Father also. If a man denies the Son, he cannot have the Father. Jesus said that in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And this is why we know that when the, the proponent of Islam or the proponent of Orthodox Judaism or the proponent of Hinduism comes up and says, well, we actually all pray to the same God. The question is, 
oh, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ then? And when they say no, well, then you're not praying to the same God I am because you can only get to the Father through the Son. It is what Jesus said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. You're praying to something, but it is not the Father because the only way to get to the Father is through the Son. That's what Jesus said. And so if a man denies the Son, he cannot have the Father. Many, many important things happening here. We come to the meat of John's warning about false teaching. Apparently these men, whoever these antichrists were, these false teachers were, to some degree or another, and we don't know the details, uh, were, they were denying the messianic nature of Christ. They were denying that Jesus is the Christ. We don't know all of the ins and outs. I could point to several um, false teachings of the day and say, maybe it was that one, maybe it was this one, maybe it was that one. Okay, it could have been a few. But one way or another, these false teachers were, were, were denying Christ in some way. It may have even been that they were denying Christ in the way Paul talked about it in Galatians, Galatians when he says that if anyone come preaching any other, even an angel of heaven, preaching any other gospel than the gospel which is given by the apostles, let him be accursed, right? And the idea there was that they were teaching the false gospel of trying to resubmit people to the law. And so we don't exactly know what the denial of Christ is here, but there was some denial going on. Now, this was obviously something which was prevalent among Jews at the time, but it seemed to be coming, in this case, from those connected with the church. They had formed some sort of doctrinal conviction, perhaps not unlike many of the offshoots of Christianity today who regard Jesus as person. They regard Jesus as a man, maybe even a good prophet, maybe even a God, but they fundamentally deny the claim that he is one with his father, and that you must come to the father only through the son. There are many of those offshoots. We can talk about the Jehovah's Witness. We can talk about the Latter-day Saints. We can talk about, um, well, those, those are the two primary cults that still regard Jesus in high regard. Um, to, to some degree, Islam does that as well, as you can talk about Islam seeing Jesus as a great prophet, just not as the Christ. But deny, they deny the idea of the finished work of Jesus Christ as sufficient unto salvation. Now, in this case, it came out of the Christian church, right? So Islam hasn't come out of the Christian church. But those other two offshoots, among several other cults, have. But John says they are liars. They're liars. Who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He's a liar. And if he's walking in lies, he's walking in darkness. And the truth of God is not in him. Now, this is not to elevate ourselves and to say, we get it and they don't. No, anyone can have it. God has made it very plain. Whosoever will may come. We don't have some secret knowledge. We're not preaching a Gnostic gospel. We're not in some sort of secret club that nobody can get into unless we let them. Jesus has said, the, the door is open wide. Anyone can come in. The knowledge is there for all and whosoever will may come. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But if they're lying about Christ, then they're, they're not in the Father because they're not in the Son. They're not walking in fellowship. They do not have the anointing. They do not have the Father because they deny the Son. Notice finally here, and this is the last thing on this verse. I may have bit off more than I can chew tonight. Notice finally in the second half of verse 23, it's all italicized. This is one of the larger italicized portions in our King James Bibles. Usually you'll see one word Two words italicized, but here we have a whole phrase. Let's take a quick moment and remember what the italics mean in our King James 
Bibles. Not every Bible does this. Uh, more modern Bibles, some of them do, some of them don't. But our King James Bibles have these italics. When you find the italics, it means that this was a place where the translators of the King James Bible inserted a word into the text that was not directly found in their Greek manuscript. These words are implied, oftentimes, but not directly written. And this was a common and acceptable thing in Koine Greek. The structure of sentences was such that there were a lot of words that could be um, put in by implicitly, put, put in by implication, though they were not explicitly written. We can do this a little bit in English. We can drop a modifier here or there, drop a preposition, and it can still make sense, especially as we get into the colloquial use of the English language. There's a lot more of the dropping of various modifiers and such, and that works out. Of course, in, in Greek, among all the languages of the day, the fewer words you had to write, the better, because you were doing it on papyrus, and it was very expensive and complicated, and so it wasn't just like, hey, just print off another sheet of paper with a few more modifiers on it. Didn't work that way, right? Uh, everything was very hand, handwritten, very slow, very tedious, very difficult. The fewer words you wrote, the better. And so we, we uh, see that that's not an uncommon thing. So the King James translators would regularly, they do regularly put italics into the Bible where there's something like that. It's rare, however, to see a whole phrase added in italics. What that means is that the King James translators believed this entire phrase was not in the original manuscripts, but that it fit here nicely as it relates to comprehension, and it was useful in order to comprehend the whole. Now, again, this is very unique. The words are not... This is extra interesting. The words of this text, the italicized words there are not in the Textus Receptus. That is the text that undergirds the King James Bible. Most of you are familiar that the text that, that undergirds the King James Bible is a fundamentally different Greek text than that undergirds any other Bible in the English language that, that we use regularly. Going all the way back into the 1800s, starting in, in 1880-ish, uh, uh, every Bible after that that was used used a modified, a different Greek text. And that's where our disagreement lies as it relates to the text, is that we believe that the, the, it, it's not even as much about the King James itself as it is that the text that undergirds the King James, we believe, is a more accurate Greek text. And then, of course, the King James is a fantastic translation and a well put together. And so of those or older translations, this is the one that we hold to. But what is interesting about this is that this exact phrase, um, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. This exact phrase is found verbatim in newer Greek manuscripts. And what is interesting about that is because we see it verbatim in newer Greek manuscripts, uh, not, 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 not newer not, not newer manuscripts, excuse me, newer, newer compilated text. So, uh, boy, now I have to get into... Uh, uh, I'm going to give some real cliff notes here. The, the Textus Receptus and the critical text are compilations of Greek manuscripts from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Those compilations are put together, and the biggest difference between the critical text and the Textus Receptus, which undergirds the King James, is that there were some older manuscripts 
that have been accepted by the critical text that in the days that the King James was translated, they believed were corrupt texts. And we in this church still believe that those are corrupted texts. What we find here is the fact that, of course, those texts being older were added to the critical apparatus, were added to the critical Greek text later. The King James translators knew of those texts. They knew they existed. This actually proves that they knew they existed because they verbatim took a phrase from that critical Greek text and put it italicized into the King James Bible. But what they also did here, and by the way, the phrase is, is not just found in the, in the critical text. It's found in the Syriac, the Coptic, the Latin Vulgate, and others. But what is so interesting is that the King James translators also used other texts than just, say, Stephanus's Textus Receptus and Scrivener in order to translate the King James. They showed a willingness many times to step outside of the Textus Receptus proper and to go to other texts when they believed it useful, proper, accurate. But they still chose to keep this phrase in italics telling us that while they believed that the phrase was important to the meaning of the text, they were not convinced that the phrase was actually original to the scriptures. So they put the phrase in because its meaning is 100% in line with what the text is trying to say, and actually it helps round out the understanding of the Greek. But they left it in italics, showing that they were not fully convinced that the Greek text should have it. To the contrary, they say it's impossible that the phrase should remain explicit rather than implicit, so they're going to put it in, but they're going to leave it in italics. So that's kind of what's going on there. That's why the italics are there, and that's why we see an entire phrase. They knew of the phrase. They knew of other texts that had it. The Latin Vulgate had it. They, they appealed to the Latin Vulgate regularly in their translating work. They, the Syriac had it. The Coptic works had it. And then, of course, some of these older manuscripts had it. But they still chose not to put it in without the italics. They chose to leave the italics there. Okay, we are reminded by this of, what our, uh, of that which our church has often discussed as it relates to translations. Translation work is messy. We hold to the infallible, inerrant inspiration of the original scriptures and the perfect, perpetual preservation of those scriptures to every generation. We believe that the word of God is God's work, not man's. But that does not mean that every translational decision is cut and dry. Because men are fallible. And by the way, we're going to see another one of these next week. When we get to chapter 3, and specifically, uh, if you want to do a little looking into it, chapter 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law... For sin is the transgression of the law. Wait a minute. Paul has spent an awful lot of the New Testament telling us we're not under the law. What is that about? Not the biggest fan of the way the King James translators translated this one. You go look into it and you can figure that out a little bit maybe on your own. We'll clear all that up next week. But that's okay that I could disagree with the translators in translation. I'm not trying to say that all of those extremely intelligent men who are far beyond me in intelligence were wrong. But we can have a disagreement. That's okay. And we need to remember that. 
There's a difference between I disagree how this should be translated and, oh, you're going to use a corrupt text to translate the scriptures, right? There's a difference, and that's where we hold that line. Okay, so back to the meaning of the text itself. A man who denies the character of the Son as the Christ who died for the sins of the world is not just a denier of the Son, but by virtue of a denial of the Son, he denies the Father also. This is John's warning to these believers. John then gives an exhortation in verses 24 and following. 24, 25, 26, and then again in 28 and 29. And that becomes our application this evening. Let's read it together. 1 John 2, verse 24. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Skip verse 28 there. Uh, um, we already covered that. And this becomes our application. Christian, we are in a world full of lies. We are in a world full of error. You say, well, that's why we run to those representatives of the church. That's why you run to those, those men who claim to represent the Bible so that you can get the truth. Maybe. The number of teachers who come out of the church but are not of the church well outnumber the t teachers that are in the church. You've got to know that. John writes these words to these believers concerning those who seduce them, calling them unto this end. Abide in him. How do we do that? Verse 27 says that as we allow the anointing of God in Christ through the Spirit of God that is indwelling us to testify of the truth of Christ to us, we submit ourselves to the convicting and the teaching work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. We abide in Him. And then he says here, as it relates to these things, hold fast to that which you have heard at the beginning. What is that thing that is the beginning of every anointed one's anointing? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love the brethren. This, this is the beginning. This is the foundation. Hold fast to that. Abide in Christ. How do we abide in Christ? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love the brethren. If a man say he walks in the light but hates his brother, he is in darkness even until now. These things are written that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Con uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. So we know how to abide. Abide. And as you abide, hold fast to that foundation. Hold fast to the beginning. 
Stay close to Christ. Abide in Him. Love the Father. Love the brethren. And then allow the Spirit of God to commend those truths to your heart. And when we abide in Him, we continue with the Son, we continue with the Father, we have confidence, confidence in our position in Christ, confidence of our eternal rewards, confidence of our future destination, rooted in trusting the testimony of the Spirit of God in our hearts as He applies the Word of God. And this stands in contrast to seducers. This stands in contrast to the seducers that pervade this age of the church, the information age. You can't go anywhere in the Christian subculture of the West without tripping over people making dramatic claims of biblical authority. Men and women calling themselves prophets, drawing people unto ideas, unto philosophies, unto hope, unto doom, invoking dramatically misinterpreted and misapplied concepts of the Word of God, invoking human reasoning, fallacious logic that sounds biblical, but doing so in a manner that serves to strip from you the clarity as it relates to obedience to Christ. They divide people in the church. They confuse people rather than clarify. But as I said, there's so much error. I could literally spend every sermon of the rest of my ministry highlighting false teacher after false teacher. And by the time I hit them all, there would be a thousand new ones to hit after that. False doctrine is everywhere. But you know what? I don't have to. And here's the reason why I don't have to spend all my time teaching you about every false doctrine that's out there. Because truth is not a negative force. Truth is a positive force. I don't have to spend all of my time teaching you all the counterfeits. Because if I spend all of my time teaching you what is true, the counterfeits become obvious. If I spend all of my time telling you what the Word of God says, and we spend our time commending the Word of God to our hearts, then when someone comes telling us something that is not in the Word of God, the Spirit of God and the abiding in Him will tell us, "Uh uh-uh, that is not true. That is wrong. And I know, I may not know why it's wrong in the, in the most technical sense. He's up here uh, quoting, quoting the, the church fathers and he's up here telling me what's in the Greek and all of these things that I am not educated for. Fine and well, but you know what? If it's not what the word of God says, I'm not going to believe it. I'm certainly not obligated to believe it just because you claim to be a representative of God and just because you claim to have knowledge that I do not. And that's what John is saying here. We know that Jesus is righteousness. We know that he is righteous. So if a teacher is not living in Christ's righteousness, if he is not calling you unto Christ's righteousness, he is not of Christ. Don't listen to him. We know that those who abide in Christ love the brethren. So if a teacher is hostile toward the brethren, don't listen to him. Does it mean he's teaching falsely? Well, no, but it means he's not manifesting light. He's manifesting darkness. I'm not going to listen to someone that's manifesting darkness. I'm going to wait for someone that is commending the truth in light. Our privilege is to submit to the truths of God's word through the spirit of God. 
and then to compare what teachers are saying to the truths of God's word, identify the seducers, and keep ourselves in the love of God. And by the way, that burden falls upon you for me as well. If I start, walk, start, start walking in darkness, now I'm a believer. I can confidently say that. But if I start walking in darkness and commending darkness, get me out of here. Find someone new. Someone who will teach you truth. Someone who com- will commend truth to your heart. Now, 1 John is not considered a definitive treatise on guarding ourselves against false teaching. But it's very much primary to the book. And so as we finish today, let me leave you with a few thoughts. There's a difference between the false teacher and the true teacher. There's a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. And the supreme difference is not our morality, our associations, or our words. You cannot just hear what somebody is saying and say, oh, okay, they're a believer or an unbeliever. You can't even just hear me say the gospel and say, oh, okay, he must be a believer because he knows the gospel. How many people do you know that know the gospel but are not believers? It's the ministry of the Spirit of God in the hearts of believers. It is the things which the Spirit of God works in the heart of a believer unto obedience, unto righteousness, unto unity, unto charity. God has given us the greatest asset that a person can have at their disposal in the battle for truth and error. He has given us the ultimate defense against the deceits of Antichrist, and that is the defense of his spirit within us. This is why it's so important that we walk in the light as he is in the light, because you, as he is in the light, because you will not discern the spirit of God if you're walking in darkness. This is why it's so important that you're not grieving or quenching the spirit of God, because if you are grieving or quenching the spirit of God, then you have cut yourself off from your, your most important source of understanding, teaching, and discernment. And as I said, you've experienced this before. Not a warm, fuzzy feeling, not an emotional motivation, but the testimony of the Spirit of God in your heart when truth is taught and it is commended to your heart as it enters your ears or as you read it in the book. The truths of God enlighten you when you read His Word and then you understand what the Word of God is saying. You know how it applies to you and you're compelled to obey His Word. You've experienced that, that's invaluable. But you know what's going to keep you from that? Sin. Sin. So you've got to walk in truth. These things rest on us through conviction. They may be heavy. They may be light. But they commend themselves to our truth through the Spirit of God. This is the ministry of the Spirit of God in your heart through God's Word. Not above God's Word, not beyond God's Word, through God's Word. The Word of God falls upon your heart. The Spirit of God commends it to your heart. It is a partnership of the Word of God coming out of the mouth of a teacher or in your eyes as you read it in a book, and then the Spirit of God commending it to your heart. The Spirit of God teaches us God's Word, brings it to remembrance, compels us to walk in it, empowers us to do it. And then as we follow the Spirit of God into the truths of God, we submit ourselves to them. They are true. They are no lie because they are the words of God in Christ. And then we progress in our Christian life. And that gives me confidence 
to know that I will not be ashamed before him at his coming. And then I can walk with knowledge that I'm abiding in Christ, so I'm abiding in the light. This is the ministry of the Spirit of God in our hearts. This is our defense against the false teacher. Again, I'm not talking about an emotional feeling. It's not just, well, I really felt that one, so, so that one must be true. No, no, motivational speakers are everywhere, and they're very good at convincing you that what they think is true. No, we're talking about the commendation of the Spirit of God that says this is consistent with what you know of the gospel. This is consistent of what is from the beginning. This is right before God. This is right with His Word. I read it in His Word. This is clarity. This is truth. The Spirit of God commending it to my heart. The false teacher, the false believer will not be so. There will be no Holy Spirit unction. May I put it that way? They'll talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. They will. They'll talk about him all the time, in fact. Why? Why do false teachers love the Holy Spirit? Well, because the Holy Spirit is a means by which they're able to add subjectivity to the commands of Scripture. And so you'll see them speak of things as it relates to the Spirit of God, but in contrast to the Word of God, in opposition to the Word of God. They'll say the Spirit of God is telling me this, even though the, Spirit, even though the Word of God is saying that. That is not the Spirit of God talking. If the Spirit of God is telling them something other than what the Word of God is saying, that's not the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth that testifies of Christ. He will never testify anti-Christ, ever. So the false teacher will talk of the Holy Spirit all the time. We're not talking about that. We're talking about are they speaking truth? The false teacher is not born of Christ. They do not understand the Holy Spirit. They interpret the Holy Spirit to be a feeling. And they can work feelings in people. They're very good at that. They will misuse the Word of God. They'll reinterpret the Word of God. They'll twist it. They'll contort it in the name of God. But all for not, as it relates to truth, for all of the feelings that they can inspire, for all of the motivation that they can conjure. They cannot tap into the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a true believer because the Spirit functions to commend the truth of Christ to our hearts. Learn to recognize that, Christian. John was writing both to fathers, to young men, and babes in Christ. Learn to recognize the ministry of the Spirit of God to commend truth to your heart. Learn when that is, when there's the grading of the Spirit of God with something that is being claimed to be truth. Learn to fall back upon the foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and do not depart from them and stay rooted in them so that if anyone comes to you telling you anything that is not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can resist. Because the false teacher cannot tap into the Spirit of God because he's not of Christ. The Spirit of God does not commend the ideas of men to our hearts. The Spirit of God does not conjure good feelings in us. The Spirit of God teaches truth, helps us understand that truth unto the end, not of good feelings per se, but of joy. And there's a difference there too. And as you submit to the ministry of the Spirit of God, you are taught of Him. He will lead you into this truth. You will abide in Christ. And this will bring confidence that will lead to that fullness of joy. So believer, be so careful. John says, I write these things concerning them that seduce you. These aren't necessarily easy things to spot from a distance. 
But when you get up close, they cannot be missed. John says, they are from us, but they are not of us. They teach many things, but in works they deny him. They extend well beyond the truths of the word of God and use great swelling words to seek to counterfeit the ministry of the spirit of God in the life of a believer. They deviate from the doctrines of Christ, teaching instead the doctrines of men. You will know them by their fruits. And may God help us to know them. And let me just say one more thing as we close. There's no greater tragedy than to watch someone fall into false teaching. There's no greater sorrow than to watch someone genuinely seeking the satisfaction for their soul and be drawn away by a spiritual predator. The solution is not necessarily easy, but it's also not complicated. Keep yourself in the love of Christ. Hold fast to the anchor of God's word. Be humble enough to trust his word. Commended to your heart by the ministry of the spirit of God within you. It isn't complicated. But it does take something which many simply don't want to give. And it's that something which, for which the false teacher will never ask. It takes humility. Not before the teacher. I will never ask you to humble yourself before me. It takes humility. Not before the teaching. My words are certainly not worth humbling yourself before. But it takes humility to humble yourself before the word of God. And this is the thing that the false teacher will never ask, but that God requires. To come to Christ utterly empty of self, yielded to the will of God to set aside my rights and my priorities and by faith believe God's promises. That when I do things his way, When I yield to his truths, I will find the joy and peace which no doctrine of men can ever provide. And by God's grace, there will be none under the sound of my voice this evening, online as they listen in the future, who will become prey to false teaching. But John gave us the tools here at our disposal, if you are in Christ to guard yourself against it. Keep yourself in the love of Christ. Hold fast to those things which were from the beginning. Learn to understand this unction, this anointing that is within you, not to commend to your heart feelings or logic, but to commend his word to your heart. Humble yourself before it. Allow the Spirit of God to be that teacher. And He will be. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.